The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This is ridiculous. I didn't kill Dave. He was my friend. You sure about that? Because the day he was killed, a witness saw you threatening him. I was his sponsor. He was in trouble. I was pushing him to attend the Pathological Liars Anonymous meeting. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's it. How dare you, sir? Compulsive and pathological lying is a mental disorder caused by psychological trauma. This is not something to joke around about. Okay, fine. But then how can we believe anything you say about Dave? You're a self-confessed liar. I'm reformed. I took a vow of honesty, a pledge to refrain from lying. Come <laughs> on. Everybody lies. Not me. Not anymore. Not even a little fib. Nope. A white lie. No. I can prove it to you. Ask me what I think about your writing. What do you think of my writing? I think you're a Patterson wannabe, and I think your last book was a boring retread. You see? Brutal truth. Uh, no, that's just being mean. No, honest. Unlike you, a man who obviously wears lifts so he can lie about his height. No, no, these aren't lifts. These are custom prescription insoles. Uh-huh. What are you laughing about? You clearly dye your hair so you can lie about your age. A little bit in the, in the temples. Okay, look, let's assume what you're seeing is is true. You said Dave was in trouble. What kind of trouble? I started a couple of weeks ago. He fell off the wagon. He started lying out of control. And he was scared. Scared of what? And he had uncovered something, something dangerous, illegal. Why didn't he come to the cops? He lied so many times to so many people, even his own wife. He knew nobody believed him. He was a boy that cried wolf. But whatever it was, he said he needed proof before he could go public. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 5th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright You liars, every one of you. You're all a bunch of liars and you probably have already told more lies over the past week than you can possibly imagine. Now how do I know this? Because if you never lie, then there's something wrong with you. And I know that most of you are probably pretty honest folks, so you must be doing some lying at least. Sound contradictory? Not necessarily so. But is lying always a moral offense? Or can lying be a moral obligation? That's among the questions we shall attempt to resolve by show's end today, which begins right after you're reminded that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support, and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. You've probably heard the old joke a million times. How can you tell when a politician's lying? (laughs) His lips are moving. We practically accept this joke as a truism. There are many reasons for this, not the least of which is that politicians speak frequently in public and to large crowds and gatherings. 
they're in a position of attempting to appeal to competing interests and motivations. Many view politics as war, and in times of war, lying and deception are two of the key weapons. Entire propaganda efforts are undertaken. And of course, all's fair in love and war, winner take all. Regrettably, there's another major group that's earned a reputation for lying that's not so far removed from politicians, and that's the mainstream news media. Thanks to Donald Trump, the term fake news has finally surfaced, a term that ironically reveals a truth about the lies we read in our news media daily. And to that end, I find myself obligated to kick off the show by sharing this commentary with you because there's a bit of history about fake news that we should all be aware of, especially since it goes a long way towards explaining the fake news phenomenon. Why many of today's news reporters believe it's their duty to lie to you. And this was an opinion piece by Brian Cates that appeared in the Epoch Times back on May 23rd of this year. And I quote, U.S. President Donald Trump rolled out a new immigration plan in a press conference at the White House Rose Garden on May 16 that focused on addressing the major flaws in America's current immigration laws and border control system. During his presentation of this plan, Trump said the following, quote, We must also restore the integrity of our broken asylum system. Our nation has a proud history of affording protection to those fleeing government persecutions. Unfortunately, legitimate asylum seekers are being displaced by those lodging frivolous claims. My plan expedites relief for legitimate asylum seekers by screening out the meritless claims. If you have a proper claim, you will be quickly admitted. If you don't, you will be promptly returned home." In an act of brazen dishonesty, here's how CNN's Jim Acosta summarized on Twitter for his audience what the president said. Quote, Trump in Rose Garden speech paints asylum seekers with broad brush accusing them of misleading immigration authorities at border. Quote, These are frivolous claims. Quote, end quote. That bit of sophistry quickly drew the ire of the official Trump War Room account on Twitter, which called out Acosta's dishonest reporting. How can you do this and go home at night thinking you've turned in an an honest day's work as a journalist? Acosta shot back the following. Hi at Twitter Trump War Room. In the transcript you provided, you note that Trump describes asylum claims as, quote, frivolous and meritless, end quote. The transcript also notes Trump uses the term asylum abuse. Trump clearly is accusing asylum seekers of misleading immigration authorities, as I said. Now, most people who saw what Acosta did here will wonder how he thinks he has any integrity whatsoever as a journalist. I happen to know quite well how people in the DNC media complex, like Jim Acosta, can do this kind of thing every single day and actually think they're being heroic for doing so. Back in 2008, the Associated Press's Washington bureau chief, Ron Fournier, publicly introduced the concept of accountability journalism. The idea was to give reporters a license to go beyond just reporting the facts of a news story in a neutral and objective manner. Fournier basically endorsed the idea that journalists need to stop seeing themselves as neutral relators of facts and begin shaping narratives for the public in order to hold the powerful accountable. There's a marked difference between where the basic facts of a story go versus where the reporter would like it to go because of his or her own political tastes and views. This is precisely why the American news media for many years championed the ethical guidelines of strict neutrality and objectivity in reporting the news. 
a journalist who got caught molding a news story to fit his or her own biases while omitting key facts from their reporting that counted against the outcome they wanted was considered to be engaging in journalistic malpractice. What was once considered ethical malpractice in journalism is now expected and even encouraged in many newsrooms. Far from being desirable, political neutrality in the newsroom came to be viewed as a bad thing. We're now 11 years removed from 2008, when many media outlets in the political news industry enthusiastically embraced the new accountability journalism guidelines. Accountability journalism was the last thing American news industry needed. Fournier's Frankenstein monster has now created an entire generation of reporters and editors who see absolutely nothing wrong with being politically partisan and biased in their shaping narrative. Since Acosta thinks Trump is a bad president who must be held accountable at all times, the accountability journalism philosophy gives him the green light to crudely distort Trump's words to achieve his goal of being a heroic journalist who's holding a president accountable. Understand this, you can't shame reporters like Acosta, no matter how brazenly dishonest his behavior becomes. It's impossible because they know exactly what they're doing, and they're doing it deliberately because they see it as their vital public service to set the proper narratives for the public, even if that involves lying to the public. That's why the old legacy media cannot be rehabilitated. There are too many people inside it who could never go back to the old and outdated way of covering the news, strictly neutral and unbiased. They wouldn't even be psychologically capable of doing it. Instead of being rehabilitated, it's going to have to be replaced. CNN is on the way out, as are many of these other outlets that went all in on accountability journalism and ditched all objectivity and standards in service of their own biases and agendas. Far from making the U.S. political news industry better, accountability journalism totally ruined it. It created an atmosphere in which being neutral and objective in reporting on political issues is seen as counterproductive and outdated. What many in the mainstream media loved the most about accountability journalism is that it allowed them to openly be what they always were, political activists disguised as reporters, chafing under the repressive strictures of the old model of neutrality and objectivity. The good news is that the DNC media complex has almost completely rotted itself to the point of total ruin at this point, and the collapse of the industry has already begun. Trump predicts Many of the news outlets will be gone in six years. I think he's right. End quote. So fake news has, of course, become one of the most recognizable and most public forms of what we might refer to as lying. You know, generally when most people think about lying, they think about themselves being lied to or lied about. They rarely think of themselves as being the liar, nor do they consider how they might even be unwittingly or unconsciously giving power or credibility to a lie told, regardless of who is telling it. To explain what I mean, coming up next is an audio bite of Pamela Meyer speaking at a TED conference way back on October 13, 2011. TED, of course, standing for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. What I found most interesting, particularly for our purposes today, were her observations about the various black and white truths related to lying. We're all liars. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you what the research says about why we're all liars, how you can become a lie spotter, and why you might want to go the extra mile and go from lie spotting 
to truth-seeking. So before we get started, what I'm going to do is I'm going to clarify my goal for you, which is not to teach a game of gotcha. Lie spotters aren't those nitpicky kids, those kids in the back of the room that are shouting, gotcha, gotcha, your eyebrow twitched, you flared your nostril, I watched that TV show lie to me, I know you're lying. No. Lie spotters are armed with scientific knowledge of how to spot deception. They use it to get to the truth, and they do what mature leaders do every day. They have difficult conversations with difficult people, sometimes during very difficult times. And they start up that path by accepting a core proposition. And that proposition is the following. Lying is a cooperative act. Think about it. A lie has no power whatsoever by its mere utterance. Its power emerges when someone else agrees to believe the lie. So I know it may sound like tough love, but look, if at some point you got lied to, it's because you agreed to get lied to. Truth number one about lying. Lying's a cooperative act. Now, not all lies are harmful. Sometimes we're willing participants in deception for the sake of social dignity, maybe to keep a secret that should be kept secret, secret. We say, nice song. Honey, you don't look fat in that, no. Or we say, favorite of the digerati. You know, I just fished that email out of my spam folder. I'm so sorry. But there are times when we are unwilling participants in deception, and that can have dramatic costs for us. Last year saw 997 billion dollars in corporate fraud alone in the United States. That's an eyelash under a trillion dollars. That's 7% of revenues. Deception can cost billions. Think Enron, Madoff, the mortgage crisis, or in the case of double agents and traders like Robert Hansen or Aldrich Ames, lies can betray our country. They can compromise our security. They can undermine democracy. They can cause the deaths of those that defend us. Deception is actually serious business. Lying is an attempt to connect our wishes and our fantasies about who we wish we were, how we wish we could be, with what we're really like. And boy, are we willing to fill in those gaps in our lives with lies. On a given day, studies show that you may be lied to anywhere from 10 to 200 times. Now, granted, many of those are white lies. But in another study, it showed that strangers lied three times within the first 10 minutes of meeting each other. Now, when we first hear this data, we recoil. We can't believe how prevalent lying is. We're essentially against lying. But if you look more closely, the plot actually thickens. We lie more to strangers than we lie to coworkers. Extroverts lie more than introverts. Men lie eight times more about themselves than they do other people. Women lie more to protect other people. If you're in an average married couple, you're going to lie to your spouse in one out of every 10 interactions. Now, you may think that's bad. If you're unmarried, that number drops to three. Lying's complex. It's woven into the fabric of our daily and our business lives. We're deeply ambivalent about the truth. We parse it out on an as-needed basis, sometimes for very, very good reasons, and other times just because we don't understand the gaps in our lives. That's truth number two about lying. We're against lying but we're covertly for it in ways that our society has sanctioned for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's as old as breathing. It's part of our culture. It's part of our history. Think Dante, Shakespeare, the Bible, news of the world. <laughs> Lying has evolutionary value to us as a species. Researchers have long known that the more intelligent the species, the larger the neocortex, the more likely it is to be deceptive. It starts really, really early. How early? 
Well, babies will fake a cry, pause, wait to see who's coming, and then go right back to crying. One-year-olds learn concealment. Two-year-olds bluff. Five-year-olds lie outright. They manipulate via flattery. Nine-year-olds, masters of the cover-up. By the time you enter college, you're going to lie to your mom in one out of every five interactions. By the time we enter this work world, and we're breadwinners, we enter a world that is just cluttered with spam, fake digital friends, partisan media, ingenious identity thieves, world-class Ponzi schemers, a deception epidemic. In short, what one author calls a post-truth society. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you two patterns of deception, and then we're going to look at the hot spots and see if we can find them ourselves. We're going to start with speech. Can you tell what's happening in a conversation? Can you start to find the hot spots to see the discrepancies between someone's words and someone's actions? Now, I know it seems really obvious, but when you're having a conversation with someone that you suspect of deception, attitude is by far the most overlooked but telling of indicators. An honest person is going to be cooperative. They're going to show they're on your side. They're going to be enthusiastic. They're going to be willing and helpful in getting you to the truth. They're going to be willing to brainstorm, name suspects, provide details. They're going to say, hey, maybe it was those guys in payroll that forged those checks. They're going to be infuriated if they sense they're wrongly accused throughout the entire course of the interview, not just in flashes. They'll be infuriated throughout the entire course of the interview. And if you ask someone honest, what should happen to whoever did forge those checks? An honest person is much more likely to recommend strict rather than lenient punishment. Now, let's say you're having that exact same conversation with someone deceptive. That person may be withdrawn, look down, lower their voice, pause, be kind of herky-jerky. Ask a deceptive person to tell their story. They're going to pepper it with way too much detail in all kinds of irrelevant places. And then they're going to tell their story in strict chronological order. And what a trained interrogator does is they come in, and in very subtle ways, in, over the course of several hours, they will ask that person to tell their story backwards. And then they'll watch them squirm and track which questions produce the highest volume of deceptive tells. Why do they do that? Well, we all do the same thing. We rehearse our words, but we rarely rehearse our gestures. We say yes, we shake our heads no. We tell very convincing stories, we slightly shrug our shoulders. We commit terrible crimes, and we smile at the delight in getting away with it. Now, that smile is known in the trade as duping delight. Science has surfaced many, many more indicators. We know, for example, we know liars will shift their blink rate, point their feet towards an exit. They will take barrier objects and put them between themselves and the person that's interviewing them. They'll alter their vocal tone, often making, them, making their vocal tone much lower. Now, here's the deal. These behaviors are just behaviors. They're not proof of deception. They're red flags. We're human beings. We make deceptive, flailing gestures all over the place all day long. They don't mean anything in and of themselves. But when you see clusters of them, that's your signal. Look, listen, probe, ask some hard questions, get out of that very comfortable mode of knowing, walk into curiosity mode, ask more questions, have a little dignity, treat the person you're talking to with rapport, don't try to be like those folks on Law and Order and those other TV shows that pummel their subjects into submission. Don't be too aggressive, it doesn't work. 
Now we've talked a little bit about how to talk to someone who's lying and how to spot a lie. And as I promised, we're now gonna look at what the truth looks like. And I'm gonna show you two videos, two mothers, one is lying, one is telling the truth. And these were surfaced by researcher David Matsumoto in California, and I think they're an excellent example of what the truth looks like. This mother, Diane Downs, shot her kids at close range, drove them to the hospital while they bled all over the car, claimed a scraggy-haired stranger did it. And you'll see when you see the video, she can't even pretend to be an agonizing mother. What you want to look for here is an incredible discrepancy between horrific events that she describes and her very, very cool demeanor. And if you look closely, you'll see duping delight throughout this video. But at night, when I close my eyes, I can see Christy reaching her hand out to me while I'm driving, and the blood just keep coming out of her mouth. And that, maybe it'll fade too with time, but I, I don't think so. That haunts me the most. Now I'm gonna show you a video of an actual grieving mother, Erin Runyon, confronting her daughter's murderer and torturer in court. Here you're gonna see no false emotion, just the authentic expression of a mother's agony. I wrote this statement on the third anniversary of the night you took my baby, and you hurt her, and you crushed her, you terrified her, until her heart stopped. And she fought, and I know she fought you, but I know she looked at you with those amazing brown eyes, and you still wanted to kill her. And I don't understand it, and I never will. Okay, there's no doubting the veracity of those emotions. Now, the technology around what the truth looks like is progressing on the science of it. We know, for example, that we now have specialized eye trackers, infrared brain scans, MRIs that can decode the signals that our bodies send out when we're trying to be deceptive. And these technologies are going to be marketed to all of us as panaceas for deceit and they will prove incredibly useful someday. But you've got to ask yourself, in the meantime, who do you want on your side in the meeting? Someone who's trained in getting to the truth, or some guy who's going to drag a 400-pound electroencephalogram through the door? <laughs> Lie spotters rely on human tools. They know, as someone once said, characters who you are in the dark. And what's kind of interesting is that today we have so little darkness. Our world is lit up 24 hours a day. It's transparent with blogs and social networks broadcasting the buzz of a whole new generation of people that have made a choice to live their lives in public. It's a much more noisy world. So one challenge we have is to remember, oversharing, that's not honesty. Our manic tweeting and texting can blind us to the fact that the subtleties of human decency, character, integrity, that's still what matters. That's always what's going to matter. So in this much noisier world, it might make sense for us to be just a little bit more explicit about our moral code. When you combine the science of recognizing deception with the art of looking, listening, you exempt yourself from collaborating in a lie. You start up that path of being just a little bit more explicit because you signal to everyone around you. You say, hey, my world, our world, it's going to be an honest one. My world is going to be one where truth is strengthened and falsehood is recognized and marginalized. And when you do that, the ground around you starts to shift just a little bit. And that's the truth. Thank you. Lying is a cooperative act, says Pamela Meyer. But that's a completely conditional circumstance. 
When I read what I know to be a fake news story, I'm not cooperating with the lie. I'm merely being subjected to it. If I accept what I know to be a lie as the truth, only then am I cooperating with it. And if I accept the lie as truth because I don't know any better, that I have no other knowledge with which to decide differently, then I'm not cooperating with the lie. I'm a victim of the lie. Meyer's 2011 presentation was given long before Donald Trump entered the political scene, but I couldn't help but notice that according to the body language and speech cited in her presentation, that Donald Trump would appear to be the truth-teller based on the behaviors identified when he finds himself confronted with accusations by his political opponents. For example, an honest person is cooperative, will be infuriated if falsely accused. Honest people recommend strict punishments. That sounds like Donald Trump to me. Like his tweets and a lot of his responses to all of the allegations constantly hurled against him, particularly those related to repeated impeachment attempts. And whenever I've seen Trump in a press conference at the White House Rose Garden, I've never detected any deception from him. He comes across as one of the most open and accessible presidents that I've seen in my entire lifetime. When Meyer argued that we are deeply ambivalent about the truth, we're against lying but covertly for it, and that it's part of our culture and history, I think there's a lot of truth to that observation, but not in the sense that all of this lying is necessarily evil, or intended to harm others. I suppose part of the problem in resolving this moral dilemma lies in the definition of lying as compared to its potential implications. I pulled out my handy Funk and Wagnalls, and it defined lie as, quote, an untrue statement made with the intent of deceiving, a falsehood, that which creates or is intended to produce a false impression. And since the words untrue and intent were in that definition, I checked them out too. Untrue, lacking truth, not true, not corresponding with fact, not conforming to rule or standard, and to intend is to have as a specific aim or purpose or plan. And of course, we should look at the word truth as well, which it defined as the state or character of being true in relation to being, knowledge or speech, conformity to fact or reality that which is true, a statement or belief that corresponds to the reality. And of course, reality is the fact, state, or quality of being real or genuine. That which is real, an actual thing, situation, or event, the sum or totality of real things, and in philosophy, the absolute or ultimate, as contrasted with the apparent, end quote. Now notice that the definition of lying does not necessarily imply any form of criminal or immoral objective. It merely defines a lie as being a statement that does not represent the reality of a given situation or fact. It's often the case that when people object to lying, that they're assuming there's some kind of moral obligation on the part of someone expressing themselves, that they must always share what they know to be true, and that withholding such information amounts to something called a lie. But I disagree. No one on this earth is entitled to every fact and truth about anyone else simply based on one's wish or desire to have such information. I mean, that's part of the problem being faced by social media these days, particularly when private or confidential information is being shared and distributed online without the knowledge or consent of the person whose information is being shared. Now, I suppose it would be a simple thing to simply assert that 
lying is immoral, that telling the truth is virtuous, and that any society that operated on immoral principles would eventually collapse under its own corruption, and that any society operating on virtuous principles would grow and prosper in an environment of freedom. Because both in theory and practice, this is certainly true, given the proper context. I recall once being asked on an open-line talk show whether or not I believed that most people were honest. And I replied, yes. Why would you say that, asked the talk show host, having just covered some news events where there was obviously a lot of harm being done because of people lying. Because then nothing in society were work or function, I answered. Everything from contractual agreements to the administration of justice would break down, and those things are always at risk no matter what percentage of people might be dishonest. I mean, disagreements arise between completely honest people as well. But as a generality, I think it's fair to say that the degree to which a society is virtuous or corrupt is the degree to which it is functional or dysfunctional in its ability to meet the needs of the general public and each individual within it. And that's why serious and relatively rare cases of lying and misrepresentation still make the news. If everybody lied all the time, that wouldn't be newsworthy in the least. And of course, there are various forms of lying and of lies. One is called a lie of omission. While this takes many forms, it's one of those lies that becomes most obvious when you simply can't pin down a politician on a specific platform or policy as he or she evades the specifics with the likes of something like, yes, we'll be taking that into consideration or we'll be looking at that with the appropriate affected people, etc. Canada's Justin Trudeau is a master of this art of evading the truth, followed closely by Andrew Scheer, who is still fending off clarifications about his own stand on gay marriage and abortion. Most politicians understand that a large part of the voting public votes against, and not for, meaning that every time they state a true specific policy they hold, they've given voters an additional reason to vote against them. Rare are the policies that appeal to majorities relative to those that appeal to minority interests and crony interests. Then there are the so-called white lies, untruths told for a noble purpose, usually to avoid unnecessarily hurting someone else's feelings or self-esteem. Most often, white lies are more about opinions than about facts. The classic, yes dear, you look great in that dress, or that meal you cooked tasted great, are forms of such minor statements or untruths, of course, when they are untrue. In fact, I often question whether someone lying about their own opinion is a lie at all. Opinions are always subject to change depending on the factors on which they're based. Could be your mood, could be anything. Physical facts don't change. And of course, there's always a line that might be crossed in an attempt not to offend when the information required has greater consequences than just appeasing someone's temporary whim or feeling. Or consider the kinds of lies identified in our show opener today. Wearing lifts to, quote, lie about your height, or dyeing your hair to, quote, lie about your age. I don't know that I'd call those things lying. And of course, you might be called lying when you're not telling the truth because you're protecting someone's reputation that doesn't need to be sullied for any reason, or protecting their privacy. And of course, there are the lies told in self-defense. No one is obligated to show a thief where his or her safe is, nor to share the combination to that safe. And just as it was the moral thing to do to lie to the Nazis during World War II at your every opportunity, so too 
no one is obligated to tell the truth to every evil force that may exist in society. Yet, by definition, each of these instances would be called lying. Well, as far as I'm concerned, being honest is what counts. And lying is not always a dishonest thing to do, just as telling the truth is not always the honest thing to do. Go on, Colonel Hogan. Well, sir, we were being pursued by Colonel Clink, so we broke into this barn. No one has ever escaped from... You are not testifying. He really is a bloodhound, sir. <laughs> Silence! <coughs> Continue, Colonel. Well, we figured we had it made. Then this man walked in and surprised us. Major Hagel. That's right. He had us cold. Then Colonel Clink arrived with his men and opened fire, not realizing, of course, there was a German officer in the barn. And Major Hagel was the only one who was killed? Yes, sir. Sir, I assure you, had I known... Yes, sir. <laughs> Accident of war. Hagel died a hero's death. And we will see to it that you and your men are severely punished. You will be taken to Berlin for further questioning. Sir, I must protest. Colonel Hogan is my prisoner. His crime is against the authority of Starlock 13. I will see to his punishment. Very well, Clink. Heil Hitler! Heil Hitler. <laughs> Hogan, you are the biggest liar I've ever met in my whole life. Hogan, <laughs> you said a terrible thing to you. I know. He called you a liar. Really knows how to hurt a guy. <laughs> I must apologize for yesterday. You don't have to. My words, they were confused. It wasn't your fault. Please. My mother misled you. Not in everything. She has an image of you in her mind she shared it with me you are even more beautiful the way my people communicate it is direct nothing is hidden yes your mother is the first to learn our telepathy. You mean, you've never had telepathy with someone who wasn't Cairn? No. To communicate with her is um, very different. In what way? Always, there is a part of her that, um, a part of her that is dark. Dark. Um, a part of her that um, cannot be seen. Do you understand? I'm not sure. Have you asked my mother about this? Um, 
She called it, uh, a moment, um, privacy. Of course. You said among the Cairn, nothing is hidden. We value honesty, but we don't always share everything we're thinking and feeling. This is privacy? Yes. It is normal? For us, yes. If this is your way, um, I am relieved. It is our way. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And that's no lie. Is objective truth fading away, reads the headline in the National Post in an editorial by Robin McGee that appeared on June 25th. And he writes, quote, 1984 is one of the most influential and frenetically reinterpreted novels of the last century. It is also, in its black and punishing despair, one of the scariest. If that's what the world's going to be like, we might as well put our heads in the gas ovens now, wrote one complainant of the 1954 BBC adaptation. In a new analysis of the book, Ministry of Truth, journalist Dorian Linsky combines an impressive breadth of literary research with fascinating critical commentary on the novel's intellectual origins and subsequent interpretation. He argues that Orwell's fear that the very concept of objective truth is fading out in the world is the dark heart of 1984. A crucial starting point for the book was Orwell's experience in the Spanish Civil War. Volunteering against Franco's fascism in 1936, the idealistic young Orwell landed upon the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, the POUM, a ragged and minor faction of dissident communists, their vicious suppression at the hands of the Stalinists who issued a warrant for Orwell's arrest, would form his one personal experience of living under totalitarianism. The war's violence did not shock or did not the war's violence did not shock Orwell, but its lies did. Demonization of the POUM and the mindless repetition of Stalinist falsehoods by English intellectuals hardened his mind to what happens when there's no consensus about reality. In 1938, a year after returning from Spain, he already felt able to write that we are descending into an age in which two and two will make five when the leader says so. Increasingly, Linsky argues, the book was seen as a satire on the perceived destruction of private life through technology. In 2019, however, it is what our leaders choose to do with such technology that seems most important. Linsky shows how the many possible interpretations of 1984 reflect its subject, a totalitarianism so all-encompassing it affects every aspect of life and politics. Future generations confronted with their own evils will no doubt find it has plenty more to say, end quote. Now, I recall that when I went to school, the reading of Orwell's 1984 was part of the school curriculum. Tragically, there are many what I might call Orwellian lies promulgated in today's society that are used for the explicit purpose of promoting socialism or other variants of collectivism. Among the most obvious is, of course, what has been called by politicians climate change, formerly known as global warming. As a theory citing carbon dioxide as the key driver of climate change, the very notion is preposterous to anyone with even a basic understanding of CO2 and or of what the key drivers to climate change actually are. 
We've done it before. We'll be revisiting this issue very shortly on an upcoming broadcast. But the climate change propaganda definitely falls into the category of what Pamela Meyer earlier called lying as a cooperative act, since so much of the public buys into the lie and consciously dismisses any evidence or arguments to the contrary. I saw a particularly offensive example of this expressed in a recent letter to the editor appearing in the London Free Press on November 26th, written by one Robert W.S. and appearing under the heading, Time to Quit. Quote, Despite unprecedented hurricane activity, tornadoes, flooding, wildfires, rainfall, and scientific evidence, we have Councillor Michael Van Holt questioning climate change. Having views that are totally inconsistent with those of the public, he can no longer be considered a credible representative of the public. In other words, had Van Holst made his reactionary view on climate change known during the election, his chances of being elected would have been nil, and he should resign, end quote. Well, that might be among the most irrational and immoral arguments I've ever seen made on this particular topic. The writer is clearly not concerned with the possible truth about climate change. He bases his support of climate change propaganda on his belief that it is consistent with the view of its victims, the public. Worse, the writer's assertion that we are experiencing, quote, unprecedented hurricane activity, tornadoes, flooding, wildfires, etc., is completely false, according to our own research and investigation into this issue. And how does this writer know that Van Holt's views are totally inconsistent with those of the public unless he's able to read the minds of each member of that public and conduct an objective headcount? He must be another one of those telepaths we were talking about or something. Questioning climate change is the responsibility of any representative in government if he or she believes they have the grounds to do so. So there's a perfect example of someone cooperating with an act of lying. A person truly concerned with discovering the truth about climate change would never have expressed an opinion such as this. He would instead have offered evidence supporting his own position, or at the very least, asked for evidence refuting his own point of view. He did neither. This person is not concerned with the truth. Another Orwellian lie of our times is the purported existence of a post-national state and the myth of globalism. Both of these ideas also serve the advancement of collectivism in all its forms. What is really being proposed is simply a larger and centralized state, which is merely the same structure as a national state, but with fewer jurisdictions within it. And of course, there are the Orwellian lies of Marxism, communism, socialism, fascism. These are all immoral systems. They explicitly operate on the principle of violating individual rights, and that's a simple matter of definition, a definition supported both by theory and by practice, to say nothing of history itself. And here's another form of Orwellian lying that few ever think about, since it seems to be much more subtle than most forms, and that is fixing and regulating prices in the marketplace. Whenever governments regulate or fix prices, they're denying consumers vital information about the real value or non-value of the services whose prices are being controlled. This is a form of lying on economic terms, since the only way you can know the real value of a service or commodity is to allow free individuals in a free market make that determination. So by fixing or regulating a price of something, you are misrepresenting the real value of it. Now, on this side of our upcoming bumper, Philosophy for the Living on Earth from the Ayn Rand Institute with Ben Bayer on Why Be Honest. 
and on the return side of the bumper from the TV series Red Dwarf on why be dishonest, or more to the point, why lie? My name is Ben Baer. Our big question for today is why be honest? Suppose that you think, well, what if I padded my resume with uh, some extra skills, skills that I don't really have, just to make it look like I'm a better candidate? The question that I think a lot of people face with regard to this situation is, why shouldn't I do this? Why do I have to be completely honest all the time and not put those extra qualifications? I mean, most of the stuff on the resume is true. I'm probably not gonna get caught. I'm not really harming anybody by doing it, is what they'll often tell themselves. Besides, this idea that we should be completely honest all the time, it seems like a burdensome duty that we owe to other people for no obvious practical reason. Is principled honesty really just some kind of impractical, unnecessary burden that we discharge for other people? Or is there actually practical uh, significance and value in this widely recognized moral virtue? To clarify what honesty is, I want to start by saying something about what it's not, or at least what it is not simply. And one thing here is that honesty is not merely telling the truth. And to back this up, to show why honesty isn't simply telling the truth, uh, I have two kind of sub points. The first of these is that if you just tell some truth, that might not really be honest itself, because there is such a thing as a half truth which when presented is misleading. Presenting facts selectively can be dishonest. So honesty isn't just about facing some selected facts. It's about coming to terms with the whole truth. It's about seeing the forest and the trees, the full context, the wider perspective of the reality that you live in. But a second sub point under this is that Honesty is also not just about what truths you tell to other people. Because I think most people will also recognize that you can perfectly well be dishonest with yourself. I think this kind of dishonesty with yourself is probably often at the root of the dishonesty that people display toward others. They convince themselves of the lies they're telling other people, or at least they convince themselves that it's justified. And my point here is not that we need to be honest with ourselves just so that we won't lie to other people. Uh, my point is that there's a whole other relationship here with value significance that I think most people don't even consider. That is, maybe what's good and important about honesty and what's bad about dishonesty is not just about your relationship with other people. Maybe it's about your relationship with reality, your own personal relationship with reality. There's something important about that relationship that needs to be preserved. What honesty really is, is facing reality and not faking it. I think that framing our understanding of honesty in this way will pay some dividends when it comes to understanding what values are at stake in the principle of being honest.
So why do we need to face reality and refuse to fake it? I think the basic and most fundamental reason that you can give here is we need to face reality if we want to navigate our way through it. The same point is going to be true whether you're talking about navigating the auto sales market, the job market, or the political world. You need to be honest, you need to face reality and refuse to fake it if you want to navigate your way through life. Now maybe it's not as obvious in every case what the right path is through life. Maybe there are many equally good options for you to choose from, but whatever they are, the fact still remains that those options don't respond to your wishes and the obstacles in your path along that route through life also don't go away just because we wish them to. Keeping reality as your ally as opposed to making it your enemy when you're always trying to cover up what's true for fear that other people smarter than you will see it, that is a source of anxiety. That is not a way to live a happy life full of self-esteem. These are all themes that were sounded by Ayn Rand when she wrote the following about the virtue of honesty in the climactic speech in Atlas Shrugged. She said, honesty is the recognition of the fact that the unreal is unreal and can have no value, that neither love nor fame nor cash is a value if obtained by fraud, that an attempt to gain a value by deceiving the minds of others is an act of raising your victims to a position higher than reality, where you become a pawn of their blindness, a slave of their non-thinking and their evasions, while their intelligence, their rationality, their perceptiveness become the enemies you have to dread and flee that you do not care to live as a dependent, least of all as a dependent on the stupidity of others, or as a fool whose source of values is the fools he succeeds in fooling, that honesty is not a social duty, not a sacrifice for the sake of others, but the most profoundly selfish virtue man can practice, his refusal to sacrifice the reality of his own existence to the deluded consciousness of others. Try again. What is it? It's a banana. No, it isn't. Try again. What is it? It's a banana. It, no, it isn't. What is it? It's an. It's an. It's an orange. Go on, say it. It's an orange. This is an orange. It's an. It's an. It's a banana. It's no good, sir. I just can't do it. You can do it. I'm going to teach you how. Okay. What's this? It's an apple. No, no, no. What is it? Oh, it's no good, sir. I just can't lie. I'm programmed always to tell the truth. It's easy. Look, an orange, a melon, a female aardvark. Oh. oh, that is just so superb, sir. How do you do that? Especially calling a banana an aardvark. An aardvark isn't even a fruit. <laughs> it's total genius. Let's start again. Oh, sir, my head is spinning. We've been doing this all morning. Frighten, I'm going to teach you how to lie and cheat if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to teach you to be unpleasant, cruel and sarcastic. It's the only way to break your programming, man. Make you independent. And I'm truly grateful, sir. Don't you think I'd love to be deceitful, unpleasant and offensive? Those are the human qualities I admire the most. But I just can't do it. You can. I can't. Look, what's this? No. What is it? Please. Come on, what is it? 
It's a... It's a... It's a... Small off-duty Czechoslovakian traffic warden. Yes, you did it! You did it! What's this? It's a red and blue striped golfing umbrella. Yes! What's this? It's an apple. No! It's a, it's what a, is it? It's, it's, it's the Bolivian Navy on maneuvers in the South Pacific. Oh, Crichton, man, you can do it. No, I can't. Yes, you... Oh, oh, nice one. <laughs> well, I can't hang around here. I better go away and take the penguin for a walk. <laughs> I can do it. I did it again. I can lie. Come here, come here. Check this, check this, check, check this. Check Concentrate, Crichton. What's this? It's a banana. <laughs> What's this? It's an orange. What's this? <laughs> you taught him that? That's terrific! <laughs> you two should audition for What's My Fruit. <laughs> you did it wrong, man. Oh, it gets better! I just can't do it. You can, you just did it. I, I just can't do it, not when there's someone else there. What's a suitable human analogy? It, it's like trying to urinate in a public lavatory when you're standing next to a man two foot taller than you. It's just not possible. <laughs> what are you trying to do exactly? He's trying to teach me how to lie, sir. Any particular reason? Yeah. Lying's a vital part of your psychological defense system. You're naked without it. If you can't lie, then you can't conceal your true intentions from other people. Sometimes that's essential. I mean, like, take Nelson. When he put the telescope up to his blind eye and said, I see no ships. Or like Humphrey Bogart at the end of Casablanca, where he lies to Victor Laszlo to protect the guy's feelings. And I understand the theory, sir. How many times have you made me watch that movie? I understand that it can be noble to lie. I just can't do it. You can't. Look, what's this? It's a banana. It always has been a banana. It always will be a banana. It's a yellow fruit that you unzip and eat the white bits. It's a banana. <laughs> I recall once making the point that for me to accept some form of so-called artificial intelligence as being truly intelligent in the way people are, that artificial intelligence would have to have the ability to lie. That is, to misrepresent what it quote-unquote knows to be the facts for some selfish purpose, virtuous or sinister. And until that happens, for me, AI is just an A. The very word artificial implies that it's not real. And finally, have you ever heard anyone say something along the lines of, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, if truth is the recognition of reality, obviously that statement represents a contradiction and cannot be valid. The same thing cannot be true and untrue at the same time. But there are contexts in which such a statement could have some validity in the realm of personal preference and opinion. For example, you might like chocolate, but I like vanilla, is the kind of quote-unquote truth that's reflected in such a statement, but it's still not an accurate way of expressing the differences in taste or of choices. Because even if one person did like vanilla, it's still true that the other one prefers chocolate, and in this context, there's no contradiction. But to say it might be true for you, but it's not true for me, is not an objective way of expressing two different preferences. In fact, to say what's true for you is not true for me may well be an attempt to destroy objectivity entirely and to open the door to complete subjectivity. That, of course, would close all doors to any kind of debate or discussion, which is a pattern we see increasingly prevalent in today's public discourse. The truth or falsehood of all of man's conclusions, inferences, thought, and knowledge rests on the truth or falsehood of his definitions, noted Ayn Rand. So it always comes down to epistemology, doesn't it? This always reminds me of what I call the mathematics of language. In mathematics, numbers and formulas 
describing distinct relationships, form the basic structure of the entire discipline. To use the simplest of examples regarding the importance of this, consider the values represented by simple numbers. The number 1 represents a single quantity of a given entity described, be it a person or thing. For example, there's one car parked in the driveway. A number 2 represents the value of 2, a 3, 3 cars in a given example, and so forth. Now imagine if I suggested that what's 2 for you is not necessarily 2 for me. Then ask me how many cars are sitting in the driveway. It wouldn't really matter what answer I gave you, would it? You would never really know based on any number I told you. Not only would you not be able to know how many cars are in the driveway based on my telling you, you'd never be able to trust anything I say. So too, this same principle holds true with verbal language, with the words we use and the definitions applied to them. This is the source of much of the philosophical and political polarity we see in public discourse. After all, if by the word capitalism I mean an economic system free of coercive forces, and you mean an unfair and exploitive means by which capitalists and business people rob their customers, well, it's not very likely we're going to have a rational discussion about capitalism, is it? In fact, if any such discussion could possibly even take place under such a circumstance, it would have to be completely an argument about which of the definitions correspond to reality. But if one party in the discussion insists what's true for you is not true for me, well, that's the end of the discussion. It can't go anywhere. And it might be worth observing that those who do use these kinds of arguments are the ones who are generally in the wrong. They either consciously or subconsciously know that they cannot win the given debate and so merely deny the reality of their position. It's another form of lying to yourself. Perhaps the easiest way to quote-unquote face reality is by simply being certain that the definitions used in one's reasoning and communication are accurate. Definitions that correspond to reality. Now, of course, we've only scratched the surface of this theme. There is, for example, the use of so-called fact-checking as a determinant of truth. You know, that old, figures don't lie, goes the old saying. Well, not on their own they don't, but neither do they tell any truths. Figures just lie there. <laughs> they have no significance until they're attached to a narrative or an interpretation, and that's when their use in that narrative is subject to the determination of truth. And that's why so often that bromide gets twisted into another familiar one, namely, figures lie and liars figure. So am I lying when I tell you that we'll be back next week to continue our journey in the right direction? Well, we'll all know for sure next week. So join us again then. And until then, even if you assume I'm lying, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Schultz, sacking out my bunk. Sleeping off his lunch. I wonder what he's dreaming about. His dinner. <laughs> General Burkhalter, what a surprise. There's supposed to be a surprise. Stand aside! <laughs> and just what is this? I think it's what we call a Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> General Brookhunter, what are you doing here? 
First, suppose you tell me what you were doing there. Well, you're lying. Did you see? Enough. I don't want to hear any more of your lies. That's the only one I had. 